someone came knocking at my wee small door. Someone came knocking, I'm sure, sure, sure. I listened, I opened, I looked to left and right, but not there was a stirring in the still dark night. Only the busy beetle tap-tapping on the wall. Only from the forest the screech owls call. Only the cricket whistling while the dew drops fall. So I know not who came knocking at all, at all, at all. Hello, all you boos and ghouls, and welcome back to the second episode of October State of Mind. October State of Mind 2, the Octobery. Yes, yes, October State of Mind, the podcast that transports you to the month of October and spooky season. No matter what month you're in before you put those headphones on, it's always October in here. Yes, we're going to talk about everything spooky and creepy to give you the heebie-jeebies all year long. I'm your host, your ghost host. Disney didn't sue me last time, so I'm gonna say it again. Ricky Schroeder, or Rick a Treat, if you're nasty. Well, welcome back, brave adventurers. You made it through the first episode, but will you make it through this one? (laughs) (laughs) And if this is your first time tuning in, that's fine. You only missed one episode. We'll still consider you an OSOMOG, but don't say we didn't warn you. Okay, so first off, Thank you for listening. I honestly, I can't believe it. As of right now, when I'm recording this, I had over 125 downloads of episode one, and that is about 124 more than I expected, because I really thought my mom would be the only one to listen. And actually, I don't even think she's listened yet. You all are my new mom. Just kidding. Love you, mom. The poem I read in the beginning is called Someone by Walter de la Mer. I started out the first episode with In a Dark, Dark Wood just because I thought it was fun. But I think that's going to be a thing now, starting each episode with a short poem. I'm enjoying reading and finding poems online, but now I think in addition to asking for your creepy and ghostly and true crime experiences that I'm asking you to send in, if you have a short and spooky poem you'd like to submit for me to read, please send that to me too. So email me your experiences or your poems at rickyosom at gmail.com. You can also follow along on the social medias at osompodcast, pronounced awesome podcast, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I have to say, I've been in a particularly spooky mood lately, which is saying something. I think it's because I finally traveled back to New York City from where I've been staying on Fire Island for nearly five months, but my fiancé, Jerry, stayed behind, and essentially every night in the city I've been watching a scary movie. Jerry isn't as into the scary movies as I am, so watching them with him on Fire Island has been few and far between, so I had to get a binge in while I had some alone time in the city. There's also been a lot of thunderstorms lately, which has been fun. I think it's probably the weather celebrating October's state of mind. Anyway, it's all sure to make a great episode today. Now, I promised change in my first episode, and alas, change is already upon us. From now on, I think instead of having one big section of listener-submitted stories, I'm going to spread them out through the episode. So, let's get down to the spooky business and start off with a story from Keith. In New York, imaginary friend. Even though I am soon to be 71, this memory is still fresh in my mind. It was the Bronx, about 1953, when the entire neighborhood was your family. In fact, if your mom had to call you twice, another mother would ask you why you weren't answering your mama. As I'm recalling our neighborhood, I remember around the corner was a shop that sold fresh fish and chips 
and the smell is still with me, because that was always my treat for being a good boy. Funny how some things come back to you. We lived in an older two-story wooden frame house with the bedroom upstairs. My room was down the hallway, away from my parents. I remember it always being cold, even in the summertime. At the time, we lived next door to a lovely lady who did not speak much English, but the language barrier couldn't hold back our affection for her as we lovingly referred to her as our Spanish mama. I can't remember her name, but for the story, I'll refer to her as Rose. I was about four years old, and my mom and dad thought it was cute that I had an imaginary friend that I played with before bedtime. However, one night, as told to me by my late aunt, I began to yell and scream. No, don't touch me. I don't want to leave mommy and daddy. Thinking I was being abducted by an intruder, my parents rushed to my bedroom. I was told my father doubled up with pain before he entered the room. My mom grabbed me from the bed, but not before something caught her eye. I was told I kept screaming, leave me alone, I want to stay with mommy and daddy. My screams were so loud that Rose heard from next door and came by and immediately called the neighborhood priest. I remember waking up with mom holding my hands. I started to cry, no, leave me alone. When the priest asked me what I saw, I remember Rose screamed. It seems that my imaginary friend was a young girl who died in that room years before. I described the clothes she was buried in. I think the priest did some kind of ritual and blessed me before he left. Rose was in tears and made my family promise never to make me sleep in that room again. Her English was broken, but her point was very clear. I never did sleep in that room again. But oddly, I developed the habit of walking by the cellar door and screaming out loud. I later learned the cellar was where the young girl had tragically fallen down the stairs, only to be brought up to the room that I had slept in, where she passed from her injuries. I seem to remember that for a long time after that, Rose made a point of coming over from next door to bless me every night before bedtime. For today's creepy news, I got really excited for a bit because I was on Twitter the other day and I saw hashtag Annabelle trending. And then I saw a tweet from Zach Bagans, you know, from the show Ghost Adventures. He tweeted, if Annabelle has escaped, remember y'all, she only flies first class. I'd start there. And I was like, what? Annabelle, the demonic doll who spawned her own movie franchise, escaped notorious ghost hunters Ed and Lorraine Warren's haunted museum, and she flies first class? Apparently, however, that story was debunked as a headline that just got lost in translation. It was a story about the actress Annabelle Wallace talking about starring in the movie The Mummy with Tom Cruise and how apparently he doesn't let anyone run with him on film but she would conveniently run on the treadmill when she knew he would see her, and then he changed his mind. I don't know. Tom Cruise is... He's something else. I enjoy his films. Anyway, apparently a Chinese publication picked up this story, and in translation, the headline got changed to Annabelle Escaped, and then Twitter picked that up and ran with it. 
Oh, and then the first class thing, it's in reference to some paranormal hunter beef that Zach Bagans had with the current owner of Annabelle, Tony Spera, uh, who is Ed and Lorraine Warren's son-in-law. Uh, I guess he came to be on an episode of Ghost Adventures and has since essentially called Zach a hack. And then Zach responded questioning Tony's validity and if he was being irresponsible. And um, he revealed that apparently demanded first-class tickets for both Annabelle and himself. Yes, a first-class ticket for Tony and a first-class ticket for the demon Annabelle. I mean, we all let our demonic side out when we have to fly coach, am I right? So that wasn't a real news story that I could talk about on this episode, but I found a couple other good things. Do you ever get robocalls? I do. I hate them. I get them all the time. They want you to call them back and give your personal information or your credit card or your social security number or your firstborn. Um, I keep getting ones always talking about how my, I, my car insurance is running out or something, but I'm a New Yorker. I don't have a car. I did once, long ago, my 2006 red Chevy Impala. Ah, a bygone era, but no more. Well, there's a robocall that seems to be making the rounds in Canada, except this robocall doesn't ask for a callback or any information from you. If you answer this call in a pre-recorded robotic voice, all it says is, this is just a test call. Time to stay home, stay safe, and stay home. And then it hangs up. At first, when I read this, it didn't really sound so creepy to me, like, oh, just a little PSA, stay safe during COVID, but receivers of this call are, well, they're unnerved by it. And the more I think about it, the more I understand why. Who's sending this call? If it were a government-sanctioned PSA, wouldn't it say something like that like hey this is the government stay safe and stay inside we're still in a pandemic but it's it's not saying anything like that there's a reddit thread from all the receivers of this call with their theories maybe it is the government that's trying to scare those who are denying science and denying covid is it possibly testing for the impending zombie apocalypse an early asteroid warning system Is the purge actually happening? If the calls were happening in America, I'd say that last one could be a possibility, but since these are happening in Canada, I'd say probably not. It's also a call that's hard to block. Some say they have received the call three to six times in a single day, all from different numbers. Sometimes a 1-800 number, sometimes a number matching the first few digits of their own phone number, sometimes a completely random number. I guess I usually welcome being told to stay safe, but if it's just a test call, what's going to happen when it's not a test? What's the real thing? Who started this call and why? This is why I don't answer my phone, people. Just don't answer your phone. So this next creepy news story is a report from CBS Austin. Sandra Gonzalez believes images were captured of the spirit of her departed two-year-old daughter, Faviola. Faviola tragically passed away in 2018 under suspicious circumstances while in the care of Sandra's then-boyfriend. Since then, Sandra has often visited her grave in the Masonic Cemetery in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and leaving toys and other offerings to her daughter. These items began to go missing, and Sandra, concerned about theft, asked the cemetery to keep a lookout. Well, it just so happens that a family with a headstone nearby had a camera installed because they were trying to capture the vandalizer of their own son's grave, whom they believed was their son's killer who had eluded justice. When the family was reviewing their footage, they saw something concerning. Images from their camera had captured a little girl standing at their son's gravesite in the dead of night. No one else around, just a little girl. Now I've seen these images and there's no question there is a little girl in these photos. This family simply concerned that 
A little girl was lost and alone took the images to the cemetery owners, who upon looking at the images said, We know that little girl, and walked them over to little Faviola Gonzalez's gravesite. The next day, they returned to that gravesite, and Sandra and her mother happened to be there. They were shown the images of this little girl all alone in the middle of night, and Sandra immediately burst into tears, saying, I know this is my daughter. Now, what was little Fabiola doing at their son's gravesite? In a final photo captured by the headstone camera, though it is not as clear as the others, you can almost make out the shape of a little girl walking with a tall man. Sandra believes it is her daughter coming to comfort and guide this family's son to the next realm. Here's another story for you from Brit, who lives somewhere in the USA, but I don't know where specifically. Susie. At my high school, there is a ghost that lives in our cafeteria slash theater named Susie. Susie has been known to make noises and move things around. There are two different stories, though, that I really love. The first one happened during a musical practice. We were telling a freshman about Susie, and this freshman kept saying how it wasn't true and how Susie didn't exist. Then this particular freshman was center stage all by herself. And once again, she said, Susie isn't real. And then, all of a sudden, the fire flaps on the ceiling fly open, and that freshman dropped to the stage so fast. She believed in Susie from then on. The second story has to do with our storage space above the theater, which is where Susie is said to spend most of her time. This storage space is a long hallway that has props lined up on shelves along the sides. At the end was a little room that connected to the sound booth. We kept the costumes in that little room. We were always told that when you were up there to sing to Susie because she liked music. And the joke was that she wanted to keep you in there so you would stay with her. Well, one night I was at the school late with just the director and his wife. They were in another part of the school and I, being the student costume designer, was working in the costume room. The door to that room is always locked, and we are unable to unlock it, so we just keep a desk there to prop the door open. That night, I was working on costumes and singing away to Susie, when all of a sudden, I hear a noise like the desk is being pushed by the door. This is no big deal, because normally it just runs into the door frame and still props the door open, but this night I looked up to double-check, and I see the desk turn and start to go out the door. I run across the room, and I'm just able to throw my hand between the door and frame. Needless to say, I decided I was done working that night. I'm glad Susie liked my singing, but I wasn't quite ready to commit to staying in there with Susie forever. So, on my first episode, I talked about drive through haunt experiences and what the Halloween season is going to look like this year in a COVID-19 world. More and more annual events are, unfortunately, being cancelled, including now the legendary ship, the Queen Mary, 
its annual Dark Harbor event in Long Beach, California, that drew 140,000 visitors last year. And the financial toll of a year without a normal Halloween is beginning to come clear. It's worth noting that Halloween in the United States is the number two money-making holiday behind Christmas, topping more than $8.8 billion last year with people spending money on candy, greeting cards, decorations, haunts, and costumes because, let's face it, every year I think I'm going to make a cheap costume and then at the last minute I freak out because I don't have a costume yet and I end up just spending all my money on buying one. I know, I'm one of those weird Halloween people who actually... I don't have my costume planned out months in advance. It's always last minute. So in addition to all of that money being spent, there are cities like Salem, Massachusetts, with its history of the Salem witch trials, and Sleepy Hollow with its legend of the Headless Horseman that really depend on the tourism and events that Halloween brings. As Jonathan Cruck, a storyteller who performs the legend of Sleepy Hollow every October in the Hudson Valley of New York, says, canceling celebrations would make this holiday an even more dark and grimly felt time, because instead of seeking a thrill that we know is false, we'll be kind of sitting at home, you know, frightened by our own panic attack, the real creeping insidious virus that never seems to go away. However, all is not lost. Another drive through haunt has sprung up, this one called Urban Legends of Southern California. Not the northern part devised from the whispered folklore that has tortured and terrorized countless generations of SoCal residents. Urban legends of Southern California manifests the creatures and stories that have been born from the fates of the cursed and forsaken. This immersive drive through terror experience will have guests scrambling to lock their car doors until they realize that they're trapped inside. Sounds fun. On their website, it's described as a drive-through Halloween haunt, Guests will enjoy, in the safety of their own vehicle, a drive through where scare seekers will experience immersive storytelling and terrifying sets. Guests will be entertained by live performances throughout their drive, plus experience three interactive show zones and an immersive show of lights, sound, special effects, and monsters will come alive. Now, they may have heard my concerns about people being run over before, uh, because these three special show zones will have cars drive on a clearly marked trail at the max of a monitored three miles per hour, and then once they're in the show zone, they will park and turn off their engines before the scares begin. They are also taking safety very seriously and have a whole list of procedures in place, including health screenings, frequent sanitizing, cars being spaced apart, strict mask mandates if cars choose to roll down their windows to enjoy the show, and all the monsters and ghouls have been instructed to practice social distancing from the cars. See, if you're not practicing social distancing right now, you're literally worse than a monster. It seems the Halloween spirit of innovation is catching on, and according to a recent survey by the National Confectioners Association, the people responsible for all your candy, 63% of adults believe that people will find creative, fun, and safe ways to celebrate the Halloween season this year. We can still decorate inside our homes. We can decorate outside our homes. We can buy costumes and dress up. We can watch scary movies and read scary stories. We can listen to October State of Mind. Maybe we avoid the Halloween house parties and the bars this year. But what about trick-or-treating. Well, it's still on the schedule for Salem. Whether that's the smartest choice, I don't know. Perhaps if everyone leaves their candy bowls outside, maybe accompanied by some hand sanitizer, and then all the candy in your bag is cleaned or wiped down with disinfectant before consumed at home, but that would require some strict due diligence from parents? I don't know. Maybe. As Halloween Queen... Jamie Lee Curtis says, What's important is that children are resilient and putting on a costume, whether or not you're running around in the streets or in your own home. I think the idea of putting on a costume is the fun part, she said. Halloween will be different this year, but different doesn't have to be bad. So for today's haunted historic location, I thought I would talk about the Lemp Mansion in St. Louis, Missouri. It's one of the more well-known paranormal hotspots in the country, and I thought I'd talk about it because it's also 
the only time I've ever had a true paranormal experience that I haven't been able to explain away, but I'll get to that in a minute. The Lemp Mansion is a stunning 33-room Victorian house built in the early 1860s and subsequently purchased by William J. Lemp, who used it as a residence and also as an office for the Lemp Brewery. You see, William's father, John Adams Lemp, a German immigrant who arrived in St. Louis in 1838, had started a grocery store, but became a millionaire, for he was able to supply something that no other store could at the time. Lager beer. John had learned from his father in Germany how to brew this beer, and the natural cave system under St. Louis was the perfect brewing temperature for aging lager beer. He ended up abandoning his store and focused on his new brewery business, which amassed him and his family great wealth. It was eventually incorporated into the William J. Lemp Brewing Company after John passed away. William turned an already impressive home into a stunning showcase of Victorian marvel, completely renovating it in 1904. Hand-painted ceilings, an open-air lift, marble bathrooms, an atrium that at the time hosted exotic plants and birds, and underground tunnels, one which led to the family brewery, and another that led to natural caverns that held an auditorium, ballroom, and swimming pool. Just, you know, his little humble abode. However, it was during this time of William's control of the mansion and brewery that tragedy began to strike. William's son, Frederick, apparently his favorite son, which, like, I feel like having a favorite child is a little toxic, but Frederick was the heir apparent to the brewing company. But in 1901, when Frederick was only 28, he died under mysterious circumstances. Apparently, he was suffering many diseases the rest of the family did not know about. So William Lemp Jr. became the heir in Frederick's place. William Sr. took his son's death extremely hard, mourning him deeply for three years until he ended up taking his own life, shooting himself in the head in his bedroom. Things did not get better for the Lemp family from here. The brewery began to tank, and when Prohibition happened in 1919, the brewery closed permanently. This may have led to Elsa, William Jr.'s sister, to kill herself as well. Once valued at over $7 million, which is the equivalent of about $180 million today, and spanning 10 city blocks, it was then sold in 1922 for a mere 588000 which is still $15 million today, but still quite a drop from its once lofty value. They had lost the brewery, but had hung on to the mansion. William Jr. presided over the sale, only to come to the same fate as his father 18 years prior. William Jr. also shot himself in the mansion. And that's not all. Oh, don't worry, there's more tragedy coming. William Jr.'s other brother, Charles, continued to reside in the mansion after his brother's death. Charles is described as a bitter man who led a reclusive life in the mansion, reportedly only with two servants and the lone companionship of his dog. In 1941, Charles sent a letter to a South St. Louis funeral home requesting that in case of his death, his remains should be taken by ambulance to the Missouri crematory. His body should not be bathed, clothed, or changed. His ashes should be put into a wicker box and buried on his farm. There was to be no funeral held and no notice in the papers. Only a few years after that, Charles would become the third person to shoot himself in the head in the Lemp Mansion. He left a note saying, In case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me. What makes Charles' story particularly sad, and quick trigger warning for all of us animal lovers, while it was never mentioned in the police report, 
Charles allegedly shot his dog before turning the gun on himself. The thought that his dog was his only source of love and companionship in his life, and he wanted them to be together in death. Charles' nephew, William III, would die prematurely of a heart attack in 1943, and then finally, seemingly breaking this Lemp family curse of tragedy, the last remaining Lemp, Edwin, died in 1970 of natural causes at the ripe age of 90. So, after all that tragedy, it should come as no surprise that the Lemp Mansion has seen more than its fair share of hauntings. The Lemp Mansion currently operates as a restaurant and inn, but things can get really spooky on Friday and Saturday nights when you can participate in their interactive mystery dinner theater. Dinner theater is always a bit scary, people. But no, the real show happens when you sign up for one of its ghost tours or ghost hunts, which are held year-round on the ghostly night of Monday. On this tour, you'll get a much more detailed account of the history of the mansion and the Lemp family than I just gave, as you meander through the dim halls, hoping to catch a glimpse of one of the many spirits still roaming through the vast mansion. These hauntings first reportedly started taking place after the Lemp family ownership of the mansion came to an end with Charles' death, and it was turned into a boarding house. Residents reported experiencing knocks on the walls and doors, as well as phantom footsteps in the halls. Because of these hauntings, the boarding house had a hard time finding residents. No one wanted to stay in a haunted mansion. In 1975, when Dick Pointer and family purchased the mansion and turned it into the restaurant and inn that it is today, the hauntings still continued. Workers will often tell stories of apparitions suddenly appearing, objects that will go missing, strange and ghostly sounds and voices, and that eerie feeling of being watched. There are reports of doors being locked or unlocked when they most certainly were not left in that position. Lights will almost, in a sentient way, turn on or off. There are even reports of glasses that will fly off of the bar. And hauntingly, the bar's piano will often be heard, someone tickling the ivories, except no one is near. One rumored soul that is said to show his presence is that of a boy that, while never officially documented, was allegedly a secret son of William Jr. that he had with a woman who was not his wife Lillian. The boy was born with Down syndrome, and because of the time, that brought great shame to the family. He was only ever cruelly referred to as Monkey Face Boy, and was allegedly kept away in the attic. According to St. Louis historian Joe Gibbons, a former nanny and chauffeur who worked at the mansion did confirm the existence of this boy and that he was kept in the attic quarters. Ghost hunters conducting investigations will leave toys in the room that is rumored to be his, and those toys are often found to have been moved. His small face is regularly seen peeking out of the windows of the mansion, longing for life outside. Living a life of such reclusiveness and solitude has probably trapped his unfortunate soul in the place where he was trapped when he was alive. The downstairs ladies' room was once William Jr.'s space, and it seems his spirit is still up to his sleazy ways. There's a story of a woman who was using the restroom and getting that eerie feeling of being watched. She looked up to find a man peeking over the stall. Flustered, she stormed out of the bathroom and accused the two men in the bar of peeping, but the men, verified by the bartender, had never left their seats. William Jr.'s soul is also said to be repeatedly heard running up the stairs and kicking the door of William Sr.'s bedroom, 
seemingly echoing what he did the night he heard his father shoot himself. Human spirits are not the only ones who are said to still reside in the mansion. A tour guide reported hearing horses outside of William Sr.'s office, only to find nothing there, just an empty parking lot. Well, this lot was once used for tethering horses. There's also the poor soul of Charles Lemp's dog, who can occasionally be heard barking and even sometimes seen. So my own evening at the Lemp Mansion was truly memorable. At the time, I was on tour with the show Kinky Boots, and I had reached out to the Lemp Mansion to see if they would be willing to accommodate a special ghost tour for the cast after one of our performances, since their normal times for the tours were during our showtime. They were happy to arrange a special midnight tour, the witching hour, for us. Essentially, the whole cast arrived at the beautiful mansion and began with our tour guide breaking out the good old reliable dowsing rods and attempting to communicate with the spirits. If you don't know what a dowsing rod is, imagine two long metal rods shaped like a capital L. You hold the smaller part of the L in your hands. You hold them out perpendicularly, and the spirits are supposed to be able to answer your yes or no questions by making the rods cross each other. Now, of course, the rods began to cross as our guide asked questions, and some of the kids in our cast got up and began using the rods, and of course they were crossing them. Now, I wasn't entirely convinced by that. Even if that is a method that can work in terms of communication with the other side, it's also very easy to surreptitiously get those rods to cross, even if it's just subconsciously. I sometimes think on some of these ghost tours that they, they feel a need to make something happen because something isn't always going to happen. So I feel like she was like, let's start off with these dowsing rods. Something's going to happen with these rods because I can't guarantee that anything is going to happen tonight. But anyway... We finished with the rods, and we began wandering around the halls and rooms, marveling at how grand and beautiful everything was. Our guide gave us some great history and told us about many of the specters that have been seen or heard. There were definitely pockets of what I can only describe as heaviness, and rooms where the lights were on, but there almost seemed to be a haze like the room should have been more lit than it was. We made our way to the attic, where the ghost of Charles' dog is said to come to you when you stand up there and turn the lights off. And of course we did just that. And as we did so, members of the cast let out gasps as they exclaimed they could definitely make out the shape of a dog in the darkness. Maybe they did. Maybe. I did not, however, but I enjoyed the excitement from everyone. We went downstairs in one of the rooms towards the front of the house. A giant portrait of William sat behind a large desk. Our guide stood behind the desk as the twenty or so of us cast members stood at the opposite end of the room, looking toward her and the portrait. As she was giving us some history, the lights began to flicker. Seemingly, every time our guide mentioned William's name, someone in the cast pointed out. Possibly, I thought, but we can't rule out an old house's faulty wiring, too. But then, it happened. The only thing I've ever experienced that I can't explain away. It was nothing big, it was nothing monumental, but as our guide was talking, I suddenly saw what I can only describe as a small ball of yellow-white light suddenly shoot behind our guide's head toward the portrait of William. As fast as it happened, it was gone. It was not an insect, it was not dust, it was 
I guess, an orb. I quickly blurt out to the group interrupting our guide, explaining what I just saw. Most everyone remained quiet, looking somewhat confused at me, but then one of my cast members, only one, said, Yeah, I wasn't sure if I was just seeing things, but I just saw that too. If you decide to take a trip to St. Louis, I would highly recommend visiting the Lemp Mansion. Enjoy a nice meal, talk to the staff about their experiences, spend the night, take a ghost tour, and if you're daring, participate in their interactive mystery dinner theater. <laughs> but whatever you do there, keep your mind and eyes open. Listen and let me know what you experience. As James Matthew Berry wrote in his book, The Little Minister, a house is never silent in darkness to those who listen intensely. There is a whispering in distant chambers. An unearthly hand presses the snib of the window. The latch rises. Ghosts were created when the first man woke in the night. All right, here's another story from a friend of mine, Tony in L.A. Vacation Nightmare I took my ex-wife and my two kids to Martha's Vineyard one summer for vacation. The house was in the middle of the mountains. It was giant, but I got it because I wanted my kids to invite friends. Of course, it's hard to invite friends when you plan a vacation so many months out, so it ended up just being the four of us. I also got a house with a pool, but my kids were at that age where they didn't want to do anything, so they sat inside all day, and I often went outside to the pool by myself. I remember several times being in the pool, staring up at the house thinking it was straight out of a scary movie. I remember the first night we got there. We were downstairs watching TV, and we heard my ex-wife moving furniture upstairs. It seemed odd to be doing furniture rearranging, but I shrugged it off until my ex-wife came out of the bathroom right next to us. Me and my kids looked at each other like, what the hell? The next night, just to make things spookier, we went on a ghost tour of Edgartown. We stood on front lawns where people had hung themselves from the towering trees above us in the 1700s. The kids had been really excited about finally being able to have their own rooms on this vacation since they usually shared a room, and they did try sleeping in their own rooms on our first night. But after hearing that furniture moving, and probably combined with the eeriness of the ghost tour, they ended up spending the rest of the vacation sleeping in the same bed. One night, my youngest daughter had a strange allergy attack, and we had to go to the emergency room, where she was given an EpiPen. Not completely unusual by itself, allergic reactions happen, but something about it felt off. On the last day, we stopped in Provincetown in the morning on our way to Boston to fly home, and around 8 a.m., we went to get breakfast. My ex-wife began to feel off. She went outside to sit down on a park bench next to some old man. My kids and I didn't know why she sat next to somebody. She could have sat alone. All of a sudden, she started screaming, looking up at the sky and saying, No, no, no! With her arms stretched out, I stood up in front of her and held her hands locked behind me because 
it looked like somebody was coming out of the sky to torture her. Her eyes rolled up in her head, her lips turned purple, and foam came out of her mouth, and she fainted. A couple came by and put their arms around my kids to shield them from the horrible thing that was happening, and then thankfully the ambulance came. But it was scary because the hospital was about an hour away in Hyannis, so we were driving behind the ambulance having no idea what just happened. At the hospital, the doctor told us that we couldn't leave, and then he helped try to find us a hotel, but there were absolutely no hotels open in the area. He was calling them himself, and finally he looked at us and said, Well, I guess you better get on your plane and go home and find a doctor there. So, we had to leave. I thought it was strange that, after insisting we stay, he changed his mind and said we should leave. We flew home as scheduled. My ex-wife was put on anti-seizure medication, which she's supposed to take for the rest of her life. She had never had an epileptic seizure before, but that's what the hospital called this. She had one other episode in Los Angeles about six months later, and that was it. I sent her to see a psychic, and the psychic said there was a spirit in the house we had stayed in, in the mountains, and that this spirit was jealous of our relationship because even though we were not married, we were still family. She said the spirit's jealousy got so riled up that she attacked my ex-wife. My littlest daughter and I are convinced it was, indeed, some sort of spirit that came after her. Needless to say, we stopped doing family vacations together. It was too traumatic. I do take them on family vacations with Mark, my partner now, and Thankfully, we've had no ghosts in our presence that we know of. What's your favorite scary movie? As I mentioned earlier, the past couple weeks I have been on a horror movie binge. So much horror. So much not great horror. Some decent horror. Do you know that horror movies are actually the number one produced genre of film? I started writing a horror script a couple years ago because I found that out, and I saw how much bad horror gets produced in addition to the good stuff, and I figured, hey, I could write a bad horror movie. Well, so far I've only written about half of a bad horror movie, but I'll let you know if I ever finish it. I don't know if you saw the news, but I was excited to find out that two horror movies that I had been looking forward to seeing in theaters this year are going to be released digitally. Antebellum, about a successful author who finds herself trapped in the Underground Railroad era and must break her way out, starring Janelle Monet. Written and directed by Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz is coming to premium on-demand release on September 18th. It looks very mysterious and really good. And the movie Run, the thriller about an overbearing mother controlling her wheelchair-using daughter's life and then some sinister secrets come to light, is going to be coming to Hulu soon. No date on that yet. It's starring Sarah Paulson and Kira Allen and was originally slated for a Mother's Day release. I think I saw precisely one trailer for it before everything went into lockdown, but I'm really excited for that one. Sarah Paulson is brilliant, and also, apparently, this is the first film since 1948 to star a wheelchair-using actor. That's crazy. Kira Allen is that actor. Of course, I love seeing movies in theaters, especially scary movies. They're at their fullest potential on those big screens with the amazing sound systems that theaters have, but I'm just glad we'll be able to see these movies at all, and we don't have to wait a year or two for them. So, with all the scary movies that I've been watching, I thought I'd do two quick reviews of a couple that I watched. One that's new, and one that's older. One that was pretty good, and one that I absolutely hated. 
We'll start off with the bad one so we can end on the good one. I almost feel that it's my duty to warn you not to watch this movie if you haven't already. First off, I know no one ever sets out to make a bad movie, but oh, it just made me so mad. And I'm going to spoil this one for you. Fair warning. Okay. It's Would You Rather. This 2012 movie has been sitting in my Netflix queue for years. I could never quite bring myself to watch it because of the cover art. You know, it's that eyeball with a razor blade about a millimeter away about to pierce it. And as much as I love horror movies, gore isn't always my favorite. And eye trauma is always tough. I'm never quite in the mood to watch a razor blade go into an eyeball, you know. But I thought I'd finally give it a try. Put an end to its perpetual purgatory in my queue. It stars Brittany Snow, who I've always liked as an actress, as Iris, who, after her parents die, is caring for her sick brother, who has obvious guilt for his sister taking care of him. It's a nice way in, I thought. A good way to get us on the main character's side and possibly set us up for getting emotionally invested. Her brother's doctor introduces her to a philanthropist, Shepard Lambrick, who doesn't exactly come off as reputable and trustworthy, and he says if she comes to a dinner party and participates in a game and wins, he will completely cover all costs of her brother's care. Well, I don't know, she says. I'll have to think about it before ultimately deciding to participate. I'm sorry, red flag, red flag. A game? You don't want to ask what kind of game? You don't want to assume it's going to be sexual or perverse in some way? But I guess it came from a doctor's recommendation, so... We trust the doctor, I guess. When she gets to that dinner party, a long drive away from her home, we're introduced to the other participants, all of whom are sitting or standing silently, not talking to one another. Most awkward gathering ever. Iris talks to the only two friendly gentlemen who begin to describe each character, the gambler, the alcoholic, the war vet, the old lady, the punk goth girl, and then themselves, the handsome, obvious potential love interest, maybe for Iris, Lucas, and then the handsome nerdy type. As we pan around the room, each actor is doing their best to just go full force, leaning into that stereotype murder mystery dinner theater style. Dinner begins, and Iris asks if there's a vegetarian option, to which Lambrick essentially taunts her and offers her $10,000 to eat foie gras and steak, to which she doesn't put up much of a fight about, which I don't blame her. It's $10,000. But we should all get where this is going, right? Shouldn't we say, you know, thanks so much, but it's my time to bounce out? So then he convinces the alcoholic to drink a bottle of scotch. Yeah, things aren't going to get better from here, people. So the game begins with them having to decide whether to give a major electric shock to themselves or another person at the table. Ooh, an interesting moral quandary. Alcoholic man doesn't want to participate, so he is promptly shot dead, ensuring everyone else's participation. The rounds of the game get worse and worse with having to choose whether to stab people or whack people with an African whipping stick or choose a mystery punishment versus trying to hold their breath for two minutes while being forced headfirst into a barrel of water. As one by one they die off, it's clear that this game is designed to kill them. And it's mostly just general torture porn kind of stuff. Lambrick's son is also involved with the dinner party for some reason, which we never really find out why. I think to just get in an almost rape scene for gratuitous purposes. The cast is fine, for the most part, doing the best with their completely two-dimensional written characters, but Jeffrey Combs playing our main villain here is a little overplayed. There's a little too much mm, camp, I guess, in his performance compared to the rest of the cast, and compared to the violence, which has zero camp and fun behind it. It just seems like he's in a different movie. And the actress playing the punk goth girl, oof. She wasn't helped by her script, but just not great. Also, how are you going to hire Academy Award nominee June Squibb to just sit in a chair and just play a scared old woman who doesn't really do anything? Granted, this was before her Oscar nom, but still. There's some exciting moments when they almost get away, Iris being particularly spry for someone who just got stabbed in the abdomen, but mostly it's just uncomfortable violence. But also, we don't even see the eye moment. 
when the cover art is a razor blade about to go into an eyeball, I expect that to be like a huge moment, but it cuts away when that happens, which for some reason I was mad about. Like I said, I I don't love gore-centric movies, but I can handle it when done in a smart way or in a camp way. Saw is one of my favorite movie franchises because of how smart the stories are, and there's a good why behind it. That's what I was waiting for with this movie, and why I was interested in the first place. It was an interesting concept, moral quandaries, playing a game. There must be a good reason behind it. At the end of the movie, when it's just Iris and her would-be love interest, Lucas, playing the game left, I was still ready to give it a it's-not-good-but-worth-a-watch review if they resolved it well and gave me a good why. It's just the two of them left, Lucas with a terrible prosthetic on his eye after his razor blade incident, yet no blood. And uh, the two of them are given the choice to both walk away alive with no money or take the money and kill the other player. Iris, lucky girl, gets to go first. And everything that has been established about her and the trust she's built with Lucas tells us that she'll let them both escape this nightmare and save them both. But nope, she shoots him. It immediately made me mad. But I tried to rationalize, okay, she did it for her brother. She loves her brother so much. And while it felt that that should have been where the credits rolled, the movie kept going. Okay, we're going to find out why. We're going to find out what this is all about. Something good's going to happen that will make this all worth it. There's going to be some sort of twist. So she says goodbye to her abusers and thanks him for the money. He basically forces her to thank him, but still. She takes the long drive home, gets to her house with the money that's going to take care of her and her brother, checks on her brother who is in his bed still, and I thought, oh God, no. Please don't tell me. And of course, after a second check on brother, not only has he died, he's overdosed on his medication, and killed himself. Roll credits. When I tell you, I was livid. Livid. So all of this was for nothing. We never learn why this dinner party happened. And there was, after some vague talk at the mansion about the rules of the ritual, we never go further with that. Oh my God, it made me so mad. I know there's a camp of horror lovers who like unhappy endings, and unhappy endings are certainly part of the genre, and I can get on board with an unhappy ending if done well, but this just felt lazy and self-indulgent. I'm a person who 99% of the time will give a movie and at least, uh, eh, it's okay, but this movie for me was just, is bad. I'm sure there will be those that disagree with me, and that's fine. After all, I'm talking about the movie and I'm thinking about it and I had such a strong emotional reaction to it that it will probably stay with me, so maybe that's what they were going for. But from me, it gets two rotting pumpkins out of ten. Well, I said that was going to be quick. It wasn't exactly quick. (laughs) Clearly, I have a lot of feelings. But I don't want to end the episode on a rotting pumpkin, so I will give you a recommendation of a better horror film to watch, but I'll make this one quicker. I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this one without spoiling it, but it's hard because so much of what it's about at its core hinges on its last scene. I think I can do it without too much of a spoiler, though. I just can't go as in-depth as I would normally like to. Okay, so the movie is Relic. It's a new horror movie that was released on demand in July, starring Emily Mortimer as Kay, who, getting word that her mother Edna, played by Robin Nevin, hasn't been seen in days, goes to her secluded house to look for her. Joined by her daughter, Edna's granddaughter, Sam, played by Bella Heathcote. Quick side note, I just have to say, I can't see Emily Mortimer in anything without hearing her voice in my head saying, Careful, my bones. And if you know where that's from, we can be friends. After not being able to find Edna anywhere, Edna suddenly shows up one morning in the kitchen, dirty and unkempt, but acting as if it's any other day. Where has she been? Edna can't quite give an answer. 
as the movie progresses, Edna keeps switching, going back and forth between perfect lucidness and erratic behavior, prompting attempts by Kay to move her into a home. She gets confused a lot, Kay says. But does she? Is it dementia? Or does it have anything to do with that dark shadow figure silently stalking the house? And what's going on with the bizarre dreams Kay's having? The movie opens with the haunting image of Christmas lights twinkling in the darkness as a naked old woman stands silently. That black shadow figure already making its presence known. It was a simple and wonderfully evocative way of putting you in the right mindset for the movie. Although it did make me wonder, why do we have the trope of a naked old woman being terrifying? Shouldn't we be telling women of all ages their bodies are beautiful? But also, I think most of us would be mortified seeing our own grandmothers naked, so I don't know. While the movie is a little light on actual plot, it's more of a collection of increasingly disturbing erratic moments from Edna, and most of Emily Mortimer's lines are some approximation of, Mom, what's going on? What are you doing? Mom! (laughs) It's all about atmosphere, though. And the film work is really beautiful. What I appreciated about this film was the fact that it didn't rely on jump scares and it didn't follow the same formula as most quote-unquote haunted house movies. I don't know if you can call this movie a haunted house movie or not. You could. But with most haunted house movies, we come to expect an increasing level of poltergeist activity with each scene. And what was so great at building tension in this movie is the fact that pretty much everything scary came from Edna. And we didn't necessarily know if she was lucid or not in each scene. She could be holding her knife, working on her wax candle artwork, and in a moment of conflict with her granddaughter or daughter, we didn't know if she was about to erratically stab them or just get angry and argue like a level-headed person. Even a moment where she was happy and put together and convinced her granddaughter to dance with her, it was, it was a really lovely, beautiful moment, but it was still filled with tension and dread because I thought, oh, she could snap and turn in a second. Also, as the movie is ramping up towards the end, it gets more exciting, and we go to a darker, twisted, perhaps different dimension suddenly. But I won't tell you how we get there. I wish we had learned just a bit more about our three main characters here, but it ended up not really mattering a whole lot because the themes of this movie are so universal. It doesn't matter our own personal stories. So many of us have to go through this because ultimately, at its core, this movie is about three generations of women, the circle of life, mothers taking care of daughters who grow up and then have to take care of their own mothers, the things we inherit from our parents, and ultimately the horror and grief of watching a loved one lose the core of who they are because of forces beyond their control. Slight spoiler here, it's not a biggie. But there's a skin-peeling moment at the end of the film. And all at the same time, it's disgusting and horrifying, as well as being highly moving and emotional. I definitely welled up a little bit when it happened. Our three actresses give fantastic performances, especially Robin Nevin as our unhinged matriarch. And altogether, it was a film that was able to be dark, scary, full of dread, but in the end, surprisingly emotionally powerful. I'd definitely recommend having a watch, and I'd give it 8 out of 10 pumpkins. Well, that's it. Congratulations, you've reached the end of the second episode of October State of Mind. We laughed, we loved, we learned a little along the way. But mostly we chewed our nails and covered our eyes in horror, right? (laughs) Thank you so, so, so much for listening. And please, 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 if you're enjoying the show, why not give it a five-star review and subscribe? Why not? Yeah, so what? Who cares? 
I was just about to list where you could find the podcast, uh, but I realized that if you're listening right now, you probably already know where to find it. <laughs> Please send me your creepy experiences and poems to Ricky O S O M at gmail.com. And remember, we love a paranormal story. Always, always send those, but feel free to send any kind of creepy story. True crime, aliens, blips in the matrix, just a weird person you crossed on the street that gave you a creepy story. <laughs> Anything. You can also follow along at OSOM Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or find me personally at Ricky A. Schroeder on all of those. I hope you're all happy and healthy. I hope you're getting more and more pumped about spooky season. I know I am. Let me know how you're planning on keeping the Halloween spirit alive in a safe way this year. I want to know. All right. Until next time. Sleep tight, everyone. Don't look under the bed. And happy hauntings.